Amen. First Kings chapter number seven. First Kings chapter number seven and verse number 13. So good to see all of you here tonight. And uh, we have a, like has already been mentioned, we have a large contingent that are in uh, Madison at a, at a great conference they go to every year. And uh, the, the first time that we had a group go, it was a small group, and it's been so good that the group gets larger and larger. And uh, I don't know, next year it might just be me here by myself. You all may be down there, but, uh, but that'd be all right if the Lord's working. First Kings chapter number 7 and verse number 13. Remember, we have a special guest this weekend. Brother Thurman Covey had a weekend available. And every time he comes, we have people get baptized and get filled with the Holy Ghost. So we're looking forward to having a great weekend. If you know anybody that needs God, anybody that's hungry for God, you get them here. And I believe God's going to work in Jesus' name. And then the following Sunday, Brother Aaron Bounds from Ohio, one of the greatest preachers in the Pentecostal movement right now. You'll enjoy, you're going to enjoy his ministry. 1 Kings chapter 7. In verse number 13, if you found it, say, praise the Lord. And King Solomon sent and fetched Hiram out of Tyre. He was a widow's son of the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in brass. And he was filled with wisdom and understanding and cunning to work all works in brass. And he came to King Solomon and wrought all his work. For he cast two pillars of brass of 18 cubits high apiece, and a line of 12 cubits did compass either of them about. And he made two chapters of molten brass to set upon the tops of the pillars. The height of the one chapter was five cubits. The height of the other chapter was five cubits. And nets of checker work and wreaths of chain work for the chapters which were upon the top. Everybody say the top. The top of the pillars, seven for one chapter and seven for the other chapter. And he made the pillars and two rows round about upon the one network to cover the chapters that were upon the top with pomegranates. And so did he for the other chapter. And the chapters that were upon the top of the pillars were of lily work in the porch, four cubits. And the chapters upon the two pillars had pomegranates also above over against the belly which was by the network and the pomegranates were 200 in rows round about upon the other chapter and he set up the pillars in the porch of the temple and he set up the right pillar and called the name thereof Jashin and he set up the left pillar and called the name thereof Boaz and upon the tops of the pillars was lily work so was the work of the pillars finished. There's a whole lot of detail, isn't it? There's a whole lot of detail about two pillars. But I want to I preach to you. And by the way, it's good to have our young people in here. Some of them, the ones that are, are not out of town. It's glad to have you in here. I'm not used to having them here on Wednesday night. I want to preach for a little while tonight on things reserved for the Lord. Things reserved for the Lord. God, I thank you for your people. I thank you for your presence. I thank you for your word. 
God, I thank you for all that have gathered in your house tonight and for those that are joining us online. I pray, God, that you would anoint me to speak your word into our heart. God, anoint our ears to hear it, our hearts to receive it, our minds to understand it. Help us to mix it with faith, God, that it would work its way into our life. Help us not to be hearers only, but doers also. I ask you, God, to place your blessing upon your people in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. God bless you. Give the Lord a hand clap of praise, and you can be seated tonight. If you've heard me speak very much, you know that I love to preach and teach from the Old Testament. These stories that occurred upwards of 2,000 to 4,000 years ago. When God instructed holy men to write under the unction of the Holy Ghost the stories of life and service and worship, each story, each genealogy, each battle, each miracle recorded was done so to illustrate the principles and laws and statutes the commandments, priorities of life and worship. From these stories and this record, we learn the ways that God thinks and feels and views nearly all aspects of life. His principles and laws become codified in our lives by applying the stories of His Word. The construction of the tabernacle in the wilderness and subsequently Solomon's temple in Jerusalem are, in my opinion, especially important because they reveal to us principles of worship. These principles of worship are fundamental to building a life that's pleasing to God. One reason that they're so important is because these lessons reflect truths about how we worship. It's not just stories about an ancient building, but they're lessons about how we should live our lives. 1 Corinthians 6 and 19 and 20 says, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you? which you have of God, and you are not your own. For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. So when we talk about lessons from the Old Testament tabernacle and temple, we must understand that those lessons are reflective of things that we should practice in our everyday life. Amen. The Bible said that the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own, when God fills you with the Holy Ghost, you lose ownership of your own temple. Amen. It becomes God's. That's why we search the Scripture. To see how God wants us to live. 
how God wants us to act and react and to carry ourselves because I don't belong to myself. I belong to him now. And my lifestyle should reflect his ownership. Praise God. Amen. He bought us with a price. The price was his own blood. He paid the price with his blood. And now because of the price he paid, I am responsible to learn how to glorify God in my body and in my spirit. Amen. My spirit, my inner man, and my body, my outer man should both reflect what God has put on the inside of me. Amen. There's some people I know that they claim a lot of spirit, but they never let it affect their outward man. I know a lot of people that they look right on the outside, but on the inside, they need another fresh anointing of the Holy Ghost. I want my body and my spirit to reflect what God has put inside of me. I don't belong to myself. And so when I say things like, I don't think that really matters. It's not my place to think for God. It's my place to obey God. When I say, well, I don't think God really cares about that. Well, that God doesn't care what I think about it. The truth is, if it's in the Bible, if it's in his word, then I have the responsibility to use my body and my spirit to reflect that principle in my lifestyle. Amen. Can I, can I press the issue just a little bit more? In 2 Corinthians 6 and 16 through 18, the Bible says, What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. Can somebody say praise the Lord? You are the temple of the living God. You're not your own temple. You are the temple of the living God. And when we let the Spirit of the Lord inhabit our temple, then we reflect what God's values are. I got to be very careful. I got to be very careful that I live my life in such a way that I reflect the principles of God's word and will. I don't want anything in my life to be in agreement with things that belong to idolatry and idol worship. Amen. What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? What do we have in common with the things of this world, with the worship of this world? For ye are the temple of the living God. I must understand that God's ways are higher than my ways. And therefore, the things that God asks of me, the man, the, the carnal man in this world can't always understand. Amen. They don't think it's a waste of time to work all the overtime they can get. They just think it's a waste of time to come to church. Praise God. They don't think it's a waste of energy to rejoice over a sports team. They just think it's silly to do it for God. But my temple is not like their temple. And so my ways don't agree with their ways. I'm trying to press an issue here for a moment. You are the temple of the living God. You can't worry about what this world thinks about how God wants your temple to be. 
And God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. When you are a Holy Ghost filled child of God, God's walking in you and God's dwelling in you. God, I want my vessel to be worthy of you to be inside of it. I know, God, I can't do it on myself. That's why you gave me the Holy Ghost to teach me how to live and how to walk and how to worship in your way. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Wherefore, when you see a wherefore, you got to find out why the wherefore is there for. Wherefore, come out from among them. Because God is walking in you, because God is dwelling in you, because of that, we come out from among them. We come out from the ways of the world. We come out from the lifestyle of the world. And we do it because God's in us. Amen. It's not because we're better than anybody. It's because God's inside of us. And because he put the Holy Ghost in us, we come out from the world. That's what he said, wherefore come out from the world, from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, be a father unto you. You shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Both of these verses, God is telling us that we are his temple. Amen. Look at somebody, tell them you're God's temple. He tells us, he he illustrates it plainly that if we will honor the fact that we're his temple in first Corinthians, he said that, that you, you are not your own. I bought you with the price in second Corinthians. He said, you'll be my sons and daughters and I will be a father unto you. And so understanding That when you see the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament and the principles of worship that we learn from those stories, we apply those Old Testament principles to our New Testament life because now I'm the temple of the Holy Ghost. You got me? You with me now? Amen. That that was the hardest part of the whole message. It's all elementary from here. So when we look at the tabernacle and the temple, now someday maybe I'll, I'll do a series on, on it, but I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do a whole series tonight. Don't worry. But things like the brazen altar that you find in the tabernacle and the temple are important because we learn something from that. The Bible said that it was forbidden for them to ever let the fire go out. The Bible said that the fire should ever be burning and it shall never go out. They had the responsibility to protect the fire on the altar. Amen. If they knew rain was coming, they had to do something to protect the fire from the rain. If they knew, if they felt the wind starting to blow harder, they had to do something to protect that fire if they saw their wood supply starting to dwindle down, they didn't just wait till it went out and then go out because they had a commandment from God. Do not let the fire on the altar go out. From this we learn that I have a responsibility to not let my fire go out. I can't let the wind and the rain and the storms of this life put my fire out. 
I can't let the tribulations that I go through on a weekly or daily basis cause me to lose the fire of my relationship with God. If I sense my wood dwindling, my supply, then I got to do whatever I got to do to make sure that that fire never goes out. People never backslide in a second. It's a process of time, often long before on the inside, in their spirit and in their mind, they start letting that fire begin to cool and cool and cool. They didn't just leave the church overnight. They left over a long time when they ignored the fact that they had to keep their fire right before God. We learned that from God. I don't ever want my fire to go out. Amen. I don't ever want my fire to go out. Pray. I, I remember Brother J. Frank Wilson just before he had his heart attack. We were having a revival. I think he had his heart attack in maybe late January or early February. We were having a revival in January. We had a bunch of people get the Holy Ghost. And I remember one night, I don't remember what, what night of the revival it might have been, but at 81 years old, I remember Brother J. Frank Wilson. He, he, he didn't run fast, but he never quit running. He grabbed somebody that was sitting on the second row. He grabbed them by the hand. And he took off running. He was running. They were walking fast. But he never let his fire go out. You do not have to settle for a cold relationship with God. You do not have to allow your fire. As a matter of fact, the Bible forbid you to let it go out. The fire on the altar shall never, everybody say never, never go out. And we learned that from the tabernacle and the temple. And since they weren't allowed to let the fire on their altar go out, then I'm the temple of the Holy Ghost. And so I can't let my fire go out. And on it goes, the table of showbread. Some, some uh, translations call it shoe bread. Some call it showbread. All I know is it was bread that was laid out on the first day of the week, laid before the Lord on a table in the tabernacle, it was an offering to God. The loaves were symbolic, were the symbolic acknowledgement that God was their resource, their bread of life and nourishment. It was an act of thanksgiving to God for, their, for His provision. And they would put these loaves on the table on the first day of the week. And they would lay there throughout the whole week. And then on the next first day, they would bring in fresh bread. And the Bible said that on the seventh day when they went to collect those loaves, that they were still just as hot on the seventh day as they were on the first day. Amen. If you ever get a chance to listen to Brother, Brother Joe David Sizemore, one of the greatest preachers in Pentecost, he died many years ago. But he preached a message one time titled Hot Bread. He was preaching it at because of the times he got so excited, he had to bring him a chair for an illustration. And if Brother Sizemore ever got a chair out, you knew that it was getting ready to have church. He had this, and I don't remember what he had the chair, but he got so excited that for like 10 minutes, he didn't hardly say anything. He just went, whoo. And every time he'd get excited, the crowd got excited. And he was preaching about the hot bread. And his message was that we should never let the bread of life inside of us cool off. Amen. I'm going to tell you, thank God. I, I, was watching, I, I was watching during church on Sunday morning and Sunday night, 
And I was watching people get blessed all over the sanctuary. I was watching people run the aisles. When the power went out, I, in my mind I thought, here goes this sermon. And the next thing, it just raised it to another level. I don't know what y'all were thinking. Amen. But I know this much, that what happens on Sunday night, we shouldn't be dragging on Saturday night and be so cold. We should find a way to somehow keep that bread hot all week long. Amen. I don't want the bread in my soul just because it's a Thursday or a Wednesday night to get cold. God, help me to learn how to keep the bread warm. Amen. And we learned that. We learned that from the lessons of the tabernacle and the temple. Amen. We should, our walk with God should be just as hot on Saturday as it is on the Sunday before. The altar of incense represents our prayer and praise to God. It was an offering, most likely of myrrh and frankincense that permeated the atmosphere. They would light it on fire and as that, as that incense would burn, the smoke would fill the entire room, the entire house of God. And that, 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 that it filled the room and set the atmosphere for worship and for prayer. And I'm going to tell you, there's something that happens when you got a, a praying church and a worshiping church. That sets the atmosphere for people to touch heaven. There's something about a praying church that when people, when, when people walk in, they can tell there's something different. Amen. Several years ago, I, I went to the country of Oman. And I visited our missionaries there. And as part of that trip, uh, I went into an ancient souk, an ancient market in the city of Muscat. That, that, same, that same hillside had been used as a market for well over a thousand years. And you walk these, these ancient pathways and just narrow passages and merchants have, have their, their wares all laid out. And you can buy knives at this place or scarves at this place or... Or, or different things here and there. And, and all along through there, these incense salespeople, they would have frankincense or myrrh that had been lit on fire and were burning. And that, that entire marketplace, as soon as you start getting close to it, you can smell the incense burning from way out. And as you walk through, it permeates the entire atmosphere. And there is something about a worshiping church and a praying church. That when people walk into the building, they can tell that something has been transpiring in a spiritual economy. Something has been happening. And it sets the atmosphere for lives to be changed. Amen. That's what we were feeling tonight. It was the overflow of a praying church that knows how to connect and worship. Praise God. Lord, I want to be a worshiper. I want to be an incense burner. God, I want to be an incense burner that my praise as I lift it to you. Woo, hallelujah. Are you an incense burner on your, when somebody sits close to you, does your prayer and your worship affect them and draw them into the presence of God? Or are you a hindrance to them stepping into God's glory? God, I want to be an incense burner. Hallelujah. And we learned that. We learned that. And on and on it goes. I don't have, I don't have time to do a, a whole lesson on what we learn about our lives based on 
the principles of the tabernacle and the temple. But, but I, I want to key in on one thing that uh, from the text that we, that we read. And it goes about, it, it illustrates, it's illustrated from the building of the great temple in Jerusalem. It's called Solomon's temple, but it w- really wasn't Solomon's temple at all. It was the Lord's temple. Solomon built it. And so it's known to history as Solomon's temple, but it really was the Lord's temple. Solomon had inherited from his father this deep desire to build a house for God. To illustrate to God and to the world how wonderful their God was and how much they loved to worship Him. This temple was the outward reflection of their inner affection for God. It was an outward reflection of their inner affection for God. How they felt about God would be reflected in the fact that they built this glorious house for God. Solomon spared no expense. Really, it was the work of two lifetimes. His father David had spent the last half of his life stockpiling supplies for the building of this magnificent temple. God had told David, you're not going to get to build it yourself. And so David, because he didn't get mad at God because God said, you can't do it. He said, God, if I can't do it, I can help the one who can. And so David spent his entire life collecting timbers and and wood and nails and all the stuff that he would need. He stockpiled gold and silver and when and he would he he stockpiled it so that when the time came to build the temple, even though he couldn't build it himself, he wanted to have a contribution to the work that God was doing. Amen. Don't ever get jealous of someone else's job. Just do your own job to the best of your ability and let God, let God handle it. Amen. And so, and so this, it was really the work of two lifetimes. It was David's life collecting material. And then it was the, the mission of Solomon once he became the king to build this house for God. It was so amazing. And the way that they worshiped in this temple caught the attention of the world. 1 Kings 10, 4 and 5, when the queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom and the house that he had built and the meat of his table and the sitting of his servants and the attendance of his ministers and their apparel and his cupbearers and his ascent by which he went up unto the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. She was so overwhelmed by the sight of the house of God and how he worshiped, that it took her breath away. There's something powerful about the house of God, especially when God's people are worshiping him. Amen. In the building of Solomon's temple, there were two striking features that you would notice on the approach to the temple. Two massive brass columns that were on the portico, the porch. It's called Solomon's porch. Solomon sent for a man of Tyre by name of Hiram. He was from the tribe of Israel, and he was a worker of brass. His father had been a brass worker as well. Now, his father had passed away. He carried on the family business. The Bible said he was filled with wisdom 
and understanding and was gifted to work in brass. Now, we, we wouldn't necessarily think that, would we? We wouldn't necessarily think that if somebody was gifted to work with their hands that it was a gift from God. The Bible said it was that he was gifted with wisdom and understanding to work. He was filled with wisdom and understanding and was gifted. Any talent that God gives you to use for the glory of God is a gift from him. Amen. Wisdom and understanding to work in brass. The work of his hands. God had given him the ability and the understanding on how to do it. Hiram and his workers made two massive brass pillars. They must have been an amazing sight to see glistening in the sun in front of the house of God. I read an author Today, Jim Townsley wrote that these giant pillars were over 50 foot high. I read another source that claimed they were 58 feet high. Imagine, if you will, stepping up to the house of God and seeing these two massive 50 plus foot pillars. Amazing to see. You put it in perspective, they're about 17 feet higher than the peak of our new building when standing on the ground. It would be like this building, basically this building stacked on top of that building. That's how tall those columns would have been. 20 feet around. They were so striking that they actually gave the columns names. The one name was Jashin, the other was Boaz. Raymond Apple wrote that these names together, their meaning said God will establish his house by his strength. God will establish his house. They were a symbol to the people that God is going to establish his house by his strength. Brothers and sisters, you are the temple of God. According to the Bible, if you'll faithfully serve him, God will establish you by his strength. There's nothing you can't overcome in life by his strength. There's no trouble you can't get your way through by his strength. There's no enemy you can't overcome by his strength. Whatever's coming against you, the Bible says God will establish his temple by his strength. You need to face your trials with faith, your circumstances with faith, your enemies with faith. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen. It's a lesson from this temple of God. Amen. But none of that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. These mighty towers of the house of God had another distinguishing characteristic. 1 Kings 7 and 22 says, And upon the top of the pillars was lily work. So was the work of the pillars finished. Lily work was engraving. 
obviously in the shape of lilies, in the shape of flowers. 58 feet up in the air, there's this intricate carving called lily work. And when the lily work was done up there, the pillars were finished. From the ground, it's basically impossible to see the details of the lily work. It would seem to be a waste of time, resources, and money to send to Tyre to bring a man that's gifted with wisdom and understanding to work with brass. If it's going to be 58 feet up where no one can see it, any old brass worker would do. Nobody can see it anyway. Why take the time and effort when it's so far up there? It would have been more reasonable to me just do the lily work at the bottom where everybody can see it. Where they could reach out and touch the carving, the intricate details. It would seem to be much more impressive to have the lily work at eye level. So that every minute detail can be appreciated. But no, the lily work is 58 feet unseen from the earth. To the natural pragmatic mind, it would seem like a waste. What a waste of time. What a waste of effort. What a waste of money. Why put the best, most beautiful part of the pillar in a place where only God can see it? Because that's exactly the point. The most beautiful things in our lives are not done for the public to see. They're not done to impress anybody. They're not done for man's eyes. They're not done for the accolades of man. It's not done for a pat on the back. It's not made for someone else to notice. It's lily work that only God can see. Amen. Oh, hallelujah. This work was clearly, strictly done for the glory of God. No one but God would see it. Can I tell you that your personal, private prayers and devotions are lily work? Nobody else can see it, but God sees every intricate detail of how you serve Him when nobody's around. It's one thing to do it on Sunday night when everyone can see it. It's a whole other issue to do it on Monday when there's nobody around and nobody but God can see. It's one thing to sing on Sunday morning when you got a crowd of a few hundred people to appreciate it. But it's a whole other thing to be in a valley all by yourself in the midst of your de depression and discouragement and still be able to lift your voice and say, amazing grace, how sweet. It's lily work that nobody else can see but God. But that's the whole point of it. It's nobody's business but God. Just teaching a little Bible study tonight is all I'm doing. Matthew 6 and 6. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. And when thou hast shut thy door, pray to the Father which is in secret. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. 
God appreciates the lily work that nobody else can see. God appreciates the little things that nobody ever notices that you do. But God sees it. No one may pat you on the back. No one may ever say good job. If you're preaching for somebody to tell you a good message, you're preaching for the wrong reason. If you're singing so somebody can appreciate your talent, you're singing for the wrong reason. But if you're doing it unto God, it's lily work. There's some things we do that people on earth will never understand, but God sees it. How we live is lily work. How we dress is lily work. How we worship is lily. It's stuff that nobody else might see, but God sees it. That's why you better live your Sunday morning lifestyle on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. Because it's lily work that nobody else may see it, but God does. Amen. Real discipleship involves service to God that expects nothing in return. Spraying weeds that people don't ever notice they're not there. They only notice it when they are. Mowing grass that people never say, man, they did a great job there. They only say, man, somebody needs to go mow that grass. Vacuuming carpets, cooking meals for hurting people. Giving someone a ride that doesn't have a way. Being a friend to someone that everyone else shuns. Fasting meals for revival that no one knows you're fasting. Lily work that's part of being disciples and making disciples that nobody sees but God. But God appreciates it. Loving people regardless of their social standing or their past history. That's lily work. Loving people that nobody else can love, but you just do it because it's the will of God and because God put his love in your heart. It's lily work. Other people may not see anything that you do, but you just keep doing it because God sees every intricate detail of it. Realize that everyone that comes to this church, every guest, every visitor, is a gift from God and a soul that Christ died for. There's people in this church that, that, that now I, I think I preached my first sermon here in 1991. And so that's a long time ago. There are people here tonight that Brother Benny, I don't know if I've ever heard him say amen. You're off the list now. I don't know that I've ever heard them say a thing in church. But they never fail to shake the hand of every visitor they can get to. Lily work. Lily work. People that visit hospitals, it's not their family. It's not necessarily their close friend, but they'll go and visit to say that they care. And nobody ever knows they did it. It's lily work. People that send cards to guests and people that are struggling that God's laid them on their heart and they'll send a card to that person. And I've heard people say, I don't know how they knew what I needed that day, but they came on the exact day that I needed it and nobody knew that they did it. It's lily work. What's done unto the Lord is never a waste. 
some things are reserved only for the Lord. That God, if I don't get any glory out of it, it's not about that. If nobody ever says good job, it's not about that. If nobody ever pats me on the back or gives me a keep going, a don't give up, good try. If nobody ever even notices that I do it, God, it's unto you. And if it's unto you, it's never a waste. It may seem like a waste to be 58 feet up there, all that intricate work and all that detail. It might seem like it's a waste, but it's never a waste if it's given to the glory of God. Prayers prayed in secret are lily work. Good deeds rendered that no one else can see are the lily work that it takes to have revival. Doing things that no one notices but God sees. This is the lily work. God help us, Lord, to, to do some things in our life that are only reserved for you. They're not for the eyes of anyone else. It's only for you. I'm going to tell you what makes this a great church. It's certainly not the preaching. We have great music and singing, but that's not it. We have great facility, but that's not it. You know why we've been having sustained revival now for two and a half years? Because there's a lot of people doing a lot of things behind the scenes that nobody notices. People taking nights of the week to teach Bible studies to new people that nobody else in the church knows they're doing it. People that come by the church early in the morning. And they come early in the morning. They spend time in prayer. And there's nobody else here. Nobody else knows. They just do it faithfully. Because it's the lily work that the house of God must have for it to really be the temple of the living God. Why don't you stand and lift your hands to heaven? I guess I've got two purposes. One is to encourage you to find things you can do for the kingdom of God. And the second thing is to encourage those that feel like nobody notices what you do for you to understand that God notices it all and God sees it all. Some things are reserved only for the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, come on, just talk to him for a minute. Amen. I guess I'm just trying to tell you God sees it and God notices it and God appreciates it. It's the lily work that nobody but God can see. Why don't you reach over and lay your hand on somebody close to you and let's pray one for another. God, I pray, strengthen my brothers and sisters. God, I pray that you would strengthen them in your grace and in your mercy. God, in body and spirit. God, I pray that you would encourage them to know that the labor is not in vain. God, that the work that goes for you, the prayers that are prayed, the meals that are fasted, the work that's done, the outreach that's done, the invitations given, the Bible studies taught, the prayers prayed in secret, all those things, God, that are done not in the spotlight, not on the platform, God, not in a public venue, but done only for your glory, God, the things that may be 58 feet away from everybody else, 
but God, they're done for your glory and for your work and for your kingdom. God, I pray you bless all the Hirams. God, bless all the Hirams of Tyre. God, that take the time to do the intricate work, even knowing that, we're, that, that no one will ever see it. But they're doing it for you and for your glory. The lily work, God, that takes place in a quiet, lonely prayer closet. But God, I thank you for the hirings of Bethlehem Church. God, that don't take shortcuts on the lily work because it's for you. It's not for anybody else. Bless your people. Bless your people. God bless you. I feel the Holy Ghost here right now. Let's just take a minute and let's just pray. Maybe somebody just needs encouragement to know that God, that God appreciates all those things that they've done. Lord, in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Go ahead and sing. Hallelujah. somebody doing something and it might be lily work to them but it wouldn't hurt just to tell them you appreciate what they're doing for the kingdom of God amen Sunday's going to be a great day looking forward to having brother Covey with us Sunday morning and Sunday night I know we're going to have a move of the Holy Ghost and we're going to have a great time God bless you you are dismissed in the name of the Lord